Welcome to America's Top Rebbitons. May this class be for Rafua Shalema, for Cyril Brina Bat Rivka, and also for Lear Tovia Benhaya Ashna. If you would like to sponsor a podcast, please email us at atrebitsons at gmail.com. I am so happy to have on our show today, Rebitson Rachel Welfeld. Rebitson Rachel is a trained hypnotherapist and a leading expert in silent listening and intuitive response. This unique modality focuses on the breath, stillness, and the sensation of memories as they live in the body. Rebitson Rachel also does inner child work so that we can, that is also known as wound healing so that we can heal. She's a fierce protector of children and of the inner child that lives within all of us. She helps to create a space where our wounds can heal with gentleness and love by bridging those inner experiences, bridging them with safety, compassion, and bringing them to a relationship with Hashem. This is truly amazing work. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. Well, the first thing I do is breathe. (laughs) Genuinely, the first thing I do is breathe. Anytime I um, have a new client, um, whether they're familiar with my work or they're not familiar with my work, um, and it can be a little funny and strange at first because I literally, that's how I open the door. I say, welcome, you know, to my space, to our space. This is a safe space. And before you say anything, before you introduce yourself or I introduce myself, we're going to breathe together. We're just going to breathe. And the way we breathe is by breathing out all the way to the end. I prefer to do it with a big open mouth sigh. I find that that lets go. It's also within my training, my extraordinary mother-in-law who changed me and all my work really. But it's a way of letting go of all the pent up emotion, the tightened emotion, the things that we keep in us is letting it out all the way to the end <sighs> with a big open mouth sigh that lets it go back up to the room. Some people have trouble breathing. We're, we're very tight in the way we hold ourselves. And um, when somebody might say like, take a deep breath, we're like, like get, calm down or take a deep breath. There's an, often a resistance to kind of, I don't want to, and also I can't. And one of the reasons that we can't take a deep breath is because we actually hold our breath. We hold it on the intake, on the inhalation, never on the exhalation. And our lungs are like a balloon, right? So if they're already full, because we hold our breath, and then someone takes a deep breath, and we let a little breath, and we try to take in more, uh, but we can't. The balloon has to be released at the end. So you can blow out like a kid blowing bubbles under the water, into a straw. And when that happens, the lungs empty and we make room for new breath to come in. And then it goes out to the end and there's a pause and then the lungs pop open and we take a new breath. And this is so important because the breath is the way that Hashem sustains us in every single moment of time. There are three sources of sustenance that the Rabboni Shalom gives us, that Hashem gives us. And please, if I need to translate any words, I don't know who the audience is here, you let me know. Um, so there are these, we have water and we have food and we have the breath that are these sources of sustenance that need to be taken into the body. And when it comes to water and food, both of these are things that we can do without even though we need them desperately, they are our sustenance, but we can do without them for a substantial 
a really substantial amount of time. And in each of these, there's a physical level of toil we need to do to have them in our bodies, whether it's actually going to the well versus putting the cup up to our lips or whether it's actually sowing the seeds to toasting the bread, to making a sandwich, to putting it in our mouth. Whatever it is, there is a level of toil that the person needs to do to receive this sustenance. The breath, Hashem breathed at him alive and he's been breathing us alive ever since. And we know in Moda'ani, really, we say Moda'ani in the morning, the reality is that we're so grateful the breath, the spirit has been returned to us, right? And that we can live another day. We also know the Loa Lenu, that without the breath, even for a few minutes, right? God forbid we hear a story, a pool, you can't even think about it. The person is gone without the breath, right? Mm -hmm. The breath is also the only one that Hashem brings to us. There is no labor. There's no going to the well. There's no lifting the spoon. The breath Hashem brings directly to our lips, like a parent brings a spoon to his child, right? And then like toddlers, we purse our lips and we take little sips like, and then the parent is grateful. Oh, he took a bite. He took a bite and he didn't spit it back at me. Right. Hashem brings the breath directly to us in every moment of time. And we hold ourselves very tight. We hold ourselves very, very tight. And there's no room for breath. And so when we release the breath with a, conscious idea that we are back in relationship with the Rabboni Shalom. I'm allowing myself to settle and let go. And when I breathe out all the way, I make room to come back into relationship with the Rabboni Shalom through the breath and my whole body can loosen. And there's scientific ideas also bringing fresh oxygen to the brain, to the lungs, into the blood. Hashem breathes me alive in every moment. It's the way he whispers in my ear, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. We need to hold it on the inhalation. So when we exhale completely and fully, I come back into a relationship. My eyes are often closed, by the way. It's one of the ways I stay present. Mm -hmm. I come back into relationship with our bonus shalom fully through the breath. I let go and I know that with every breath I let go of, he is waiting on the other side to catch me. And so that's what I do at the beginning of any session I have, whether it's a free half hour session, whether it's with somebody knows me already, but before we even introduce ourselves, we come back to our breaths and put things down and set up our session in such a way that the Rabona Shalom is fully involved. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I, and I know that you do a lot of inner child work. So in the inner child healing work that you do sounds so powerful. It's such a powerful way to help women heal their inner emotional wounds. And I want to see if you could please talk to us today about what inner child healing really is and why it is so important. Right. So I have a notion <laughs> that inner child healing might mean a lot of different things to different practitioners. Yes. For me, inner child healing is about taking the time to recognize the places that we are reactive, that we behave 
that we move, that we create in the world in a way that we don't really want to be, in a way we don't necessarily relate to. We have the parts of ourselves that we want to relate to as the us often. Like, oh, this is who I really am. That's not, that's not me. That's right. Mm-hmm. Except that all of us, all of it is us. All of it's us behaving in different ways, moving in different ways. The inner child, if you will, the proverbial inner child, right? Is the parts of us that were developed in a very narrow experience of the world that have belief systems, strategies, and tools that we generally don't even know are there, meaning they're just the way we operate in the world. And we don't know we're creating a story and we don't know that it's our only our experience. That's just the truth of it for us. And so we come into our adulthood, I suppose, if you will, although there's so many stages of that adulthood from teenager to 20 years to 70 years, wherever we are in that adulthood, the belief systems and ideas about the world that cause us to react and behave in ways that do not necessarily serve us. And they do damage both to our own self and to the relationships we're in and people around us. So my job is to help people begin, and myself, dear Lord, so please for myself, to help us begin to notice, to observe what those places really are, what those spaces really are inside ourselves. Where am I moving from a belief system, from a strategy, from a a safety mechanism to protect myself that has nothing to do with what's actually occurring right now. And the way I do that is helping people come into a meditative or hypnotic, depending on what we're doing. It can be very similar state in which you are very, very present to the physiological sensations, both in the body and in the and in the space around us, because there's a few things that are going on there. One is that Hashem exists for us in our relationship with him only in this time of space. This is the only moment I actually have right here to be aware of Hashem, to be aware of my circumstances, to make specific choices in this moment of time based on what Hashem is presenting in front of me. And I can only know what that is if I'm fully physically present. And that means for me that my eyes are seeing, really seeing what's in front of them right now. In this moment, it's a computer screen. It's my own background, which is a, it's a, what's it called background? It's a, not a filter, but a virtual, a virtual background. Thank you. Which for me has actually become sort of a vision board for me in, in the space that I really want to be in. So that's what I'm seeing. That's what my eyes are actually seeing. I'm seeing your beaming smile and your uh, glow. I see that in front of me. And then at the same time, I can still even sort of see my own body looking outwards um, and everything that I have actually in the physical world I'm seeing here beyond the virtual background created around me and feeling myself sit. And the noises and sounds that Hashem is sending in this particular moment of time in this space is the only place 
I can know what my Heshtadlis is in this specific moment of time when I ask the question. Heshtadlis, if you don't mind translating Heshtadlis. I'm oh, sorry. Um, oh gosh, a good one. Heshtadlis, what my... Um, the work is, the work at the moment. What, yeah, my, what, what, the, what, am I, what is required of me in this moment of time yes. to fully serve? And this is obviously a very lofty concept that I'm talking about that I would love to live in and on moments of occasion do, um, where, where you're really present to what is, what, what it's only this moment. Our life is made up of particular moments. It's only this moment. So, and Hashem does not live in the mind where we, we tend to go. We want to think a lot. And we were trained to think, think more, think harder, think, right? Yes. But our minds are very, very narrow. They're very, very narrow. And if we were really, if, if think more and think harder were the answers, I wouldn't have a job. And, <laughs> and we wouldn't all be in the ruts we're in because we're smart people. And we all think pretty hard about how to get out of this, how to change this, how to be in control of my, you know, my character traits, how to be in charge of myself. And yet so many of us find ourselves so often behaving those ways we do not want to behave and trapped in that place that we don't want to be trapped in. And it's because we fall back into the pattern of the eyes roll up a little bit, just a teeny bit, and we're back in the thinking. We run away to our minds to run away from what is real. But Hashem is here in the physical. He made us physical people. He did not put us in a gray grocery bag. Our souls could be rolling around in some kind of gray grocery bag or something. Any sustenance we could take in could be gray and goofy. That's not the world he gave us. He gave us a very strong physical world and it is through that physical world that he communicates with us. When we get lost in our mind and worry, it is an absence of a moon at Mitakon. It is an absence of um, faith and trust. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I don't really speak Hebrew, but then suddenly I don't speak English either. Right? It's an absence of faith and trust. We go to the mind and it's more comfortable to go to the mind. We somehow feel like we're in control in the mind, but really, if we want our healing and if we want to know what's available, it has to be that we're completely present here. And then the second piece with that is that in terms of being completely present, it actually means coming into your physical body, like really coming into your physical body. So that would mean right now, and this is the beginning before we even go in to do the inner child work. This is the space we come to do it, right? Take a deep breath blow it out completely, make space to come back into that relationship with Hashem through the breath, let it fill you. Let me instruct you to do it with me. Breathe out <laughs> okay. Out breathe out all the way to the end. Make space for breath to come into the lungs, filling them with Hashem sustaining you, with his sustenance. And everybody have my hand over here. I'll tell you why in a minute. <laughs> And let your shoulders soften. And bring your eyes to the front so they're seeing what they're actually seeing. You can have your eyes closed or open for this process. If they're closed, they want to see the light filtering through the dark behind the lid. They don't want to roll to the back of your head to engage, which is what we tend to do when we close our eyes. If you would take your hand and place it over your closed eyes right now, you'll notice that it gets darker and then remove it and it becomes more light. The eye does not stop seeing just because it's closed. 
So we want to bring, we want to actually bring the eye to the front so that if it's closed, they're, they're directed. They see that light filtering through their eyes. And if they're open, they actually really want to see with complete clarity what's in front of them. And the ears also want to be turned towards listening to all of the sounds that are near and far that Hashem is presenting in this moment of time. Because it's the way he literally communicates with us is through these sounds and sights. And then you could feel the air on your skin. And you can feel yourself sitting. And these are physiological sensations that are here all the time. We're taught to think. We're not taught to actually be in the physical body, but Hashem gave us a physical body for a reason. And it holds all of your emotions. It holds all of your stories. It has a sensation for every one of them. When I get angry, I have a physical sensation in my chest and my throat. It's very tight, it's pounding. It fills my face. It's really, it's unpleasant, but until I began doing this work many years ago, I was unfamiliar with it. It's just, you're just angry. That's what you are. You're frustrated. You're angry. You've had it up to here, you, whatever it is. And then you make commitments to yourself. You go to a shear, you go to a class, you learn about meetos and no, I'm not going to do that. Anymore. I'm not going to raise my voice anymore. I'm not, whatever it is. All right. But then you find yourself back in there and we want to control ourselves. Calm down. You said you're going to come down. And sometimes we're successful and sometimes we're not. But one of the great reasons we're not successful is that the compulsion to behave in certain ways comes actually from the physical body. It's tight through here. It hurts in here. We don't think about it. It's just, I've just had it up to here. I've had it up to here, right? So now I want to control that. But I can't control it because I'm trying to control it with my mind. And it's not about that. It's about an actual physiological sensation in my body that's had it up to here. Now what's that physiological sensation? So I can only control it by being in relationship with this, actually. Like, oh, yeah, what's going on in there? What is this? You can't just control it up in here. This is about what's actually occurring in my body. It's so interesting what you say, because it really is. I know for me personally, I also try to control my mind. And I'm not so often present in my body. But now, you know, I'm talking to you and we're doing this together and I'm watching you and I'm also doing, you know, what you're doing uh, on my end and I'm breathing and the breathing is really helping me come more into my body. I'm feeling more of the physiological sensations that you're talking about. I'm feeling the air on my skin. I'm feeling my body calm down with every breath that I take. And once, yeah, and once I'm calm, I can be more in tune with the signals that my body is giving me. And also I can be in the present moment and I'm not so stuck in my head and I can really see what's going on, what's happening. And I can also appreciate the moment more and be more in tune with myself and what's actually happening. Right. Breathing sure. is key. <laughs> breathing is absolutely key. And it's just literally key because it is Hashem breathing us alive and it's coming back into that relationship. Yeah. That's what's occurring. <sighs> and what's amazing is that it's so hard to do. And it's so foreign for people. When I do this with new people, I so often like their discomfort is so great in the breathing, breathing with a sound, breathing deeply. And I tell them, I recognize right away. I know I'm like, I know what's weird because I remember I'm 48 now. The first time I did this, I was about 26. And I remember laughing. I was with three other women and we were being led and there's this big open mouth size and we got to the breath and I I couldn't handle it. It was so awkward and so weird that I remember I was literally rolling on the floor, like 
kicking with laughter. Like I could not be an, I could, I couldn't be a mature person about it. It was just too weird for me. And over the years, as people, I see their discomfort and I'm always like, don't worry, I know it's weird. And then I always question, but isn't it fascinating that it's weird to breathe? Isn't it fascinating that it's actually weird for us to breathe, that it's uncomfortable for us to breathe? And it's because over the years we have cut, every time I don't breathe, it's like, I bring myself inwards and I'm very tight. And when I do that, I maintain some bizarre subconscious belief of control, of being in charge or something. Um, one of the things that so often happens with people is the minute, literally, again, it could be a brand new person. The minute I say, listen, before we get to know each other, we're going to take 10 deep breaths or so together to come back in relationship, relationship with Hashem. And what happens three fourths of the time is tears. So wow. many tears before we even start speaking before anything's on the table. It's like, Oh, what, why am I crying? <laughs> and you're crying because you're just giving yourself space to let go to stop holding everything so tightly to us as if we're in charge, as if we're in control. And I am a hundred percent guilty just <laughs> to make sure no judgment on anyone or anything. I only, I only know the work I do because it's my own junk, you know, it's all the stuff I do that I'm in it. So yeah, that breathing brings us front and center to actually softening into our faith, soft, softening into our belief, softening into the reality that I'm right here, that I'm right now, that I'm actually okay in this moment of time, and that I have a tremendous amount of emotion that I have been holding and carrying. <sighs> Yeah, it feels good to breathe all, out all that that negative emotion, that negativity, all the yuck. It feels good to breathe out the yuck and just come into yourself, come into the present moment. It really makes a difference for the people who are listening and for watching. It, it really makes a difference. I know that you're watching, but if you can, if you're able to at all participate a little bit just by breathing, just deep breaths, like deep, full breaths in and out a couple of them, like not just one, two, maybe three or four, you'll really start to feel it and you'll really start to relax. And um, you'll start to come into the present moment and it really does make a difference, I promise. <laughs> sure. And remember that it's, it's always the exhalation you're paying attention to. You never need to pay attention to the inhalation because when you breathe out all the way to the end, what happens is there's actually a pause. The body will literally pause once you breathe it all the way out to the end, you'll actually pause. There's sort of a, a reset almost. And then the body... <laughs> It just inhales on its own. Now the lungs need the breath. So it's like almost they pop open. And then at that end of that pop, there's also a silent pause there. And then it refilters in the other direction. And along in the work, it is always in the end of that breath, in that moment of reset, there's actually a moment of real silence. And that's eventually where we get into listening into your silence. Because we ask in, in the work, there's questions that are asked. And then it's like, okay, now take a deep breath. And on the exhalation, do it with me now for a minute. Just listen, when you exhale all the way, listen to that silence. And there lies the silence surrounded by all the noises in which lays your own wisdom and your connection with Hashem. And then the body resets and inhales. And on that end also, again, a silence to listen into. And this silence is so important 
because whether or not we're doing inner child work or just asking for clarity in this moment of time, like you ask Hashem for clarity about something and then we go in our minds and start jibber jabbering about it, trying to figure it out. And it's the same as asking a friend for advice and then immediately just starting to talk over them. So when we want clarity from within our own wisdom and in relationship with Hashem, be about it healing the inner child, be it, be it about this moment of time, we want to be able to find a space that we're actually silent and listening for his wisdom, listening for our own wisdom, which it's really all the same in the end of the day, what he creates within us and what he speaks through us. So you breathe out all the way, you wait for the pause. You listen into yourself for that wisdom and then whoosh, the other direction and you're still listening into the pause and quiet and silence. And we're keeping the mind as silent as we can during that so that we can really look and listen and feel for what Hashem is presenting us with at any moment of time. That's beautiful. And is this, you know, the, the inner child work, is this the, like the breathing? Is it the setup for the inner child work? And then there's more yeah. that goes deeper? Okay. okay. Yeah. The breathing is absolutely the setup for the inner child work. So this is the second pace. We've talked about the um, physicality of what surrounds us. Yes. And we've even started to feel the air in our own skin a little bit and feel yourself sitting. But what's going on in terms of the inner child work, again, is going to be within the body itself. There are all the sensations that are being sent to us in any particular moment of time, right? Like I said, the sitting, the air on our skin, maybe it's sun on our skin, maybe it's wind on our skin, the clothing on your body shifts every time you breathe in and every time you breathe out, the lungs rise and fall. There are, there are just so many physiological sensations being sent at one time that Hashem actually sends to ground us here, most of which we are trained to ignore and run away from. And then there's what's coming out of the body itself, right? And in any given moment of time that I'm experiencing something, whether it be joy and pleasure, because I never want to leave that out, all that exists as well, or whether or not it is some kind of fear or self-criticism or um, distrust, whatever it goes on, the things we want to heal, right? And then I'll, I'll also call that behaviors that come with us because we're not always so aware of, oh, well, what's underneath that, right? With every behavior that I have, with every, in the ways I don't want to behave in particular, there's going to be strong physiological sensations in my body. So <clears throat> on a personal level, right? Uh, when I hear that a friend of mine uh, got engaged, she's 40 years old, she's been waiting and like, you know, but oh my gosh, if I pay attention, I, Oh, everything in here is lit up. My face is like full of exciting, tingling, fire, smiling. I'm walking around excited and joyful. But what does that actually mean? It means that there's sensational qualities in my body that are lit up, that are tingling, that are joyous, and they have a physical feeling, to physiological feeling. On mornings that I wake up in the morning and I remember how much I have to do today, then I remember that money's tight today. And I remember that my husband's sick. And oh, so now I have a feeling really sensation in my body that's kind of like a little bit, we call it anxiety, we call it distress, we call it whatever we call it. But if I pay attention, I'm notice, oh, actually it's tight in my throat. It's a sort of a movement through my chest that's just kind of uncomfortable. 
Um, it's, a, it's a sort of a hollow feeling in my belly. There's something, there's things going on there, right? Mm-hmm. It's a physiological sensation that's compelling the way we experience whether I feel motivated, whether I feel angry, whether I feel joyous, whether I feel lethargic. There's always a physiological component to that in the body. Sometimes we're familiar with it. Most of the time people are not familiar with these physiological components, mostly because they're, we're so used to them. They're just always there. We think of ourselves as uptight, angry, frustrated, happy, whatever it is, but we don't contemplate the actual physiological sensation. Those physiological sensations that are in the body are the, between the breath and those physiological sensations are the way that I would take a person inside their own self to start exploring behaviors, stuckness, patterns, they're, they're having constant fights with their husbands that are totally their husband's fault, X, Y, and Z, you know? But wait a minute, let's pause and see what's really going on. And it's not to, I don't want everyone to sound like I'm saying, oh, the other party isn't responsible at all. But no, we are creating something generally with the other party. So this is the place where we're going to take, okay, what, when he comes home late, what happens? Where do you go? What happens to you? And then we explore the physiological triggers that are actually in the body that compel the behavior, right? That's so interesting. So- I would, so mine, um, I'll give you first an example of, of what I'm talking about with my own experience, right? For as long as I can remember really into childhood, I was stubborn. I fought to be right. I fought about my opinion. I remember it's like, I, I it's like a funny thing for me, like um, I'm an alternative, like hippie weird healer. And all I grew up knowing was I was going to be a lawyer. And I was going to be a lawyer because every single person told me in my life, every adult, that I argued so hard and I argued points so hard that people couldn't get around me, right? Even when I was wrong, that clearly I was going to be a lawyer. And it's not how Hashem ranged it in the end for me. And part of that exploration, like along the way, was what is that? That 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 crushing, it was a crushing need to be right. And when I was engaged to my husband, I remember he actually asked me, at that time, what's my worst, you know, character trait? And I had said to him, I'm surprised I knew it about myself because I think I just thought I was right. I was very young. So I, and I said to him, it, it's my need to be right. I always need to be right. And from that point on, I remember I really tried to explore what that is. Like I had so much humiliation, shame connected to not being right about something. And I, and I think I just believed that was something kind of every person had that just had to be right. Human being had to be right. And I, and I worked on it really hard for a lot of years on this character trait of myself. But the truth is I never got really far with it. I still felt a crushing and I call it really a crushing need to be right. Like I, if I found, and it, it didn't matter what it was about, if it was a significant issue, it was like literally, uh, we went to Target and we saw some cops and my husband came home and said they were red and I said they were blue. It was like this thing inside me that like, oh, and I, like that I could, I could ruin my marriage over just fighting about nothingness. And I remember that if I, let's say I went back to the store and I saw the cup, I don't know which way I said blue, red, it doesn't really matter. That I would see that I was wrong. I was so full with a, a sense of embarrassment about it that I could never even come back and just like what it would have killed me to come back and say, you know what, I went, like it's so insignificant, but it would have killed me to come back and say to him, you know what, you're right. I went back to the store and they were the color you thought they were. 
right. I couldn't move past this and they didn't know what it was like and, and like I said I kind of thought everyone felt this way which is not true not everyone experiences this um and then I, this is now years and years and years ago, but I did a huge piece. And like I said, I was always working on it and only got so far, but I did a really deep piece of meditation. My mother-in-law who, like I said, she really created silent listening intuitive response. She was leading this meditation with a group of women. And it was this moment that I went inside and I, and I went like, so I was in deep meditation and I was in my physical body and I was questioning, where did this begin? How did this start for me? this uh, piece and and I went back to this memory and there's a parental figure in my life it was not one of my parents but it was somebody who was uh, important in my life in terms of you know being an adult and I'm very young maybe five or six years old and she's accusing me of lying and it rises in me so strongly in this moment I was in a very deep meditative state in the body and it rose in me this piece of like um, being accused of lying and very intensely. So, and this was an old school woman born, born in the early 1900s. And you did not talk back. That's not how I grew up. You, you, you didn't speak back. And I just remembered this accusation. I'm standing in a doorway and she's accusing me of lying. And maybe she says like, I see red when someone lies or your face is red. And I'm just silent because you don't speak back to her. And I don't know what the topic was. But the only thing I knew for sure is I was not lying. I wasn't lying. And she actually smacked my face and said, like, go away from me. Like, I can't be near a liar. And I turned to walk away. And I think I, like, tripped and it actually fell down on my face. And she said to me, God's punishing you for being a little liar. And that's it's a pretty traumatic story. There's, By the way, there's so many stories that are not even that we would assess as traumatic in that way. Like, I think as adults, we're like, oh, what she says that she when you fall on your face. But there's so many stories that aren't even that, by the way, that cause their own just because of a childhood misunderstanding and, and a belief of what, what it is that creates something in us. So here I was. So now I'm in this space and I'm laying on the floor face down and I'm really deeply meditative in there. And what I feel rise in me is this physiological sensation of the injustice, the terrible injustice of this moment no way to take care of myself no way to answer no way to speak back and I come to a conclusion about the world I come to a strategies and tool set that I have no idea I'm coming to I'm very young and that is the only way to survive in this world is to be able to prove that you're right you have to be right and that settles in me with no like um matured concept of what that might mean that like <laughs> You know, it, there's just rightness across the board. And it doesn't matter at that point if you're right or you're wrong. So now this enters me and I spend a whole lifetime, young lifetime being told I'm going to be a lawyer. That's, that's what this means. I'm going to be a lawyer because I argue so well, right? And I always have to be right. And it's very intense inside me, right? Now I come to marriage and I'm in this marriage that could be wonderful and is wonderful. Had Baruch Hashem, it was okay. He's very chilled out. It's also a lot for me, you know, but, uh, but really to the point where I could just destroy that marriage and it always feels like he's wrong. It always feels like he's wrong and he just won't see me and he just won't let me rewrite. And I am right. And I have no concept of what I'm actually doing until I do this piece of work. And then I realize that's what's going on. So now as I'm laying on the floor and I feel this deep injustice inside me, what I also feel is, 
with crazy pressure through my belly and up through my chest and into my throat and pushing on my face hard, like fierce, like I will not be toyed with. I will not be smacked in the face again. I will not be put on the ground and told that God and God is punishing me. And I am so blessed because somehow I think that in that moment that I actually didn't destroy my relationship with God. I, there wasn't a lot of God in my life, but I just think I knew she was, I thank God, thank God I didn't destroy. I think I had a sense that she was so wrong because I knew I wasn't lying. But thank God it didn't do that piece to me but it was there. And so in that moment, once I discovered her, then I started to explore, what does she really need? Because so much of the damage that occurs to us in our lifetime is not even necessarily the thing that was perpetrated, but nobody saw us, we weren't seen. So had my mother been around, not like she was absent, God forbid, but meaning had she actually been there to see this scene, to see what had gone down. And she had picked me up from the floor, five, six years old and said to me, I am so, so sorry that just happened to you. That was a terrible thing she did. And I don't know what this is about, but I know you're an honest kid. I know you're not a liar. And she had no right to smack you. It's not a right thing. And she's been, you know, we're talking about a different generation. They were coming out of the war. They were, you know, she's been to hell and back. And the truth is she's a little crazy and it's not her fault, but she is. And I'm so, she had no right to do this to you. And I'm so sorry, a thousand and whatever she needed to hear, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, but that didn't happen. I just, it's not how Hashem arranged it. It's not how we set it up. So I laid there on the floor, developing this with inside myself, this need to be right, this incredible need to be right, this incredible need to protect myself. So once I knew that was there, right? I was able to move into something else. So now I'm fighting with my husband. <clears throat> And I'm deeply inside this need to be right. And it's very hard because you, you feel like you're right. By the way, you feel like you're right. You don't see that you might be wrong. <laughs> but I'm in this incredible, I'm in this space with him. So now at this point, what I could do is, wait a minute, I'm aware of her. I noticed that my need to be right is full of this physiological sensation in my body. It's in my belly. It's in my chest. It's in my face. And at that point, instead of saying, like, you promised you're not going to do this anymore, and that's only heightening it and making it worse, but I am right, is that I can actually stop. I can put that loving mother's hand on my throat. I can put that loving mother's hand on my chest. I can bring the adult in me that is already developed, and she is very developed, sitting here with you right now, except when I'm out there in my own life with you know, tripping up all over the place, but here she is. So I can put my hand on her here. I can say at the beginning, when I first discovered her, I had to say the whole thing. I see you. I'm so sorry. She's not well. I mean, a long story out of town. And when I would start acknowledging her, there being her being there, and that that's what's really going on. She was able to settle down. And I mean, physically, like I could feel a softness come through my throat, come through my chest, come through my face. And it was still a bit of a struggle. I could still feel residual ideas of shame and weirdness and needing to survive about being wrong, right? But it softens through here. And once she's soft through here, and I tell her, it's okay, you grew up and nobody's smacking your face and nobody's mistreating you. You're in your own home. You grew up, I don't know if you know it yet. You grew up to be okay. 
like different things that she needs to know. It softens through my chest. It softens through my belly. It softens my face. And once that, oh God, once that's there, then I can have a rational conversation. Once that's done, then I can breathe out the need to be right a little bit. Then I can make space for the other person once I'm taking care of the wounded child. And this is over a period of time, obviously. So at first, like I said, she used to need the whole conversation. And then over years, it got less and less to, but now I can say to her, I see you, it's okay, I got this, don't worry, sweetheart. And the other really important thing, which I didn't say, is the notion of introducing her to better bone shalom, to introducing her to Hashem. Because most wounded people, whether they grew up in a religious environment where they knew about God, or in a less you know, connected environment where they didn't know about God, the truth is that most, the God they knew when they're pretty wounded from childhood and the God I knew is not, he's, he's not the Hashem that's real. He, he, he's an idea of a punitive God, of a difficult God, of a, of a God who strikes you down because you lied and he's punishing you and you tripped and dropped a face God, right? <sighs> when that shifts, Right? When we get the other thing that she needs along in that conversation is to do sort of the book. It's okay, you're not alone, I see you. Then the Rabona Shalom, he sees you. He's right here, he's right with you. He loves you as you are. He loves you more than anybody can ever love you, more than you can fathom, right? So that's another piece is, is introducing her also, like in that deep, and it's cellular, by the way, this is because these are cellular feelings that are in the body that have been created over the years and we're interrupting the we're interrupting the patterns that are developing those cells. So in seven years, we can create a whole new bodies of cells that are vibrating at this damaged level as they are now. <sighs> Just taking care of her, letting her soften, stepping away if that's what she needs for a little bit. And this, and this work is done, like you said, gradually. It's not, done, it's not just one session and you're finished and poof. It's over not and over. Usually. <laughs> not usually. Sometimes people who, who knows where they come from, they have some little thing or, you know, but usually it is. And sometimes you could have a phenomenal session with somebody. Actually, most work is long-term, yeah. but on occasion you'll have a phenomenal session with somebody that opens up something like that you're shocked by um also and sometimes people will come because they're in most people come because they're in emotional pain or their behavior and sometimes people actually come because they're in physical pain and will come from the other direction what's that physical pain and on those rare i have one person who who did a physical pain piece where she just totally one session it was amazing and it, it corrected back pain that she's had for her entire life in, in, in the minute she got to the source of it and it was a completely un, unexpected source for her she'd suffered abuse in her life she'd suffered different things and we thought that's where it was going to go and it did, didn't go there it ended up going to a moment in life where she suffered a very severe traumatic incident she was actually at a friend's house when her when the friend's um father passed away while she was at the house he had a heart attack wow and she ran and for all her abuse and different things, she thought we we're going to discover the back pain. What had happened at that point is she had run home in an absolute panic um, and was screaming like he's dead or whatever she was saying. And I think her mother ran out the door to, to the neighbor also. And she stayed home and her father was there and he was calming her down and massaging her back. 
And, and when we did the work and we went back in time, what she discovered was that in her trauma, uh, in this trauma, which was way outside the abuse and different things she had suffered, was that, um, that in this moment, she had come to a strategy and belief system and, you know, that for herself, that if her back hurt, her father would have to massage her back. And if her father massages her back, her father does not drop dead. She needs him. He's there. So it was just, it was fascinating. And all the work we ever did, we thought we're going to like, could we have done work for other reasons and the abuse and this and that. And we, I, I, I you know, I for sure thought, oh, this terrible back pain is going to go to that. And then it was a very traumatic incident. Mind you, that she'd gone through. Yeah. It, it, she was there when the man had a heart attack, you know, and she was quite young. But this is actually where her back pain had begun was in this belief system that the only way to keep her father alive would be to be in constant back pain. And in one moment of time, her back pain disappeared. That's amazing. And it just shows how powerful, how truly powerful this work is. I mean, the inner child work is amazing. And wow. Um, if yeah, we're almost out of time, it's just so powerful what you said about your example about yourself and your example about this um, client that you work with. I mean, it just shows that this stuff really works, that we don't have to walk around feeling emotional pain or physical pain that dates back. I mean, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, however long it was, you know, right. from when we were little, we don't have to. Uh, you know, right. we don't, so, um, but if we don't have the pain and we don't have to let it be what leads our life, it leads our life for us. No, right. here's a thing. The Yates Sahara operates through the wounded child. That's how he operates. He gets you where it's good. Oh, he runs in with this, he, he latches on to tell you things about yourself, tell you ways you believe, and he operates all through the wounds. Oh. The Yitzhar is the evil inclination. We do not want him. We want to, to kick him out of, of ourselves. We want to kick him out, but we don't want to kick out the ones who are wounded. We want to no. take care of them. And kiss them. Just yes, like yeah. yes, to heal our wounded child. So now, um, before we go, if somebody wants to go to um, a practitioner to get to heal their own inner child, where could they find um, a practitioner who does something like this? I don't know. <laughs> I know where to find me. Um, you know, honestly, I would look up online. I, I don't have a lot, you know, the work I do is, is fairly unique. A term my father would really get me for unique and really its own word. But, um, my mother-in-law actually created the work I do about 40 years ago already. She's a phenomenal, extraordinary woman, um, who traveled the world and gathered every piece of information. She started realizing that the body was missing um, that the body sensations were missing from therapeutic work. This was long before somatic healing. Um, and I'm mostly unfamiliar in this particular, like I work with, a, I, I'm friends with and move with a crowd of all different types of practitioners. Uh, but these are always the things I'm a little funny with that. I don't, I don't, I would, I would, you know, look up someone who's got high ratings, could be certainly through Rifka Malka's coaching school. In the past, they have trained some people who have gone on to do more inner child healing. I'm not familiar with anyone who necessarily does it in the way I do it. Um, I don't know if people know where to find me. <laughs> I was going to say, I was just, that was going to be my next question. Where can people find you? People can find, I have a website and it's going to sound a little funny. I actually off the top of my head, not remembering the name of it because I let it lapse and a Chinese gambling website bought my name, rachelwelfel.com. Oh so God. it is not, it's no longer rachelwelfel.com. And I changed it. And I'm like, a off the top of my head. It's like Rachel Welfeld at, at space. Oh gosh, I'm blanking on squarepace.com or something like that. I'll actually send it to you. Okay. Um, 
I very rarely use the website. That's not how people generally reach me. They either reach me on Facebook. I have a, I have a, I do a lot of intimacy coaching also. So I have a, a group on Facebook called Honest Intimacy with like a 5,000 person following that people often join and they find me through there and they write me, a, you know, they send me a message. Um, my WhatsApp is the easiest. I'm an Eric Estral now, so I'm a little different, but I kept my American number. So the easiest way to reach me is actually on WhatsApp. And my number is 404-819-9444. And also my email, which is Rachel Wellfeld, one word, R-A-C-H-E-L-W-E-L-F-E-L-D at gmail.com is another decent way to reach me. Those are really the two. And like I said, the web, the way the website's up, but I, I moved back eight months ago and I've been a little disconnected <laughs> from just kind of resettling and um, getting into things over here. That's fine. No problem. I'll, I will include the WhatsApp number and the email in the description of the, of the right. podcast so people can access that information right. there. But um, thank you so much, Robinson, Rachel, for, for joining us on America's Top Robinsons. We loved having you on the show and we really did so much tremendous learning today. May all the growth and learning we did today be for Rofu Shalema, for Cyril Brina, Bat Rivka, and Lior Tovia Benhaya Ashna. Thank you so, so much. Amen, amen. Thank you, dear. All right. Bye.